It says Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, that is on page 573 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Page 573, this is Isaiah chapter 9. This is God's word for us this morning. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Amen. Let's take our seats. Well, go ahead and keep uh, your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 9 that we're looking at this morning. This is the first in a new series we're doing uh, that we've called Songs of the Season. And uh, we're going to be looking at Mary's song, um, uh, Zachariah's song, Simeon's song, the angel's song. And then finally on Christmas Eve, uh, we'll be looking at uh, Paul's song uh, from the book of Philippians to wrap wrap it all up. Uh, This morning, we are in Isaiah's song. And uh, the the passage we just had read out, uh, we know, was written sometime soon after, about 733 BC. We know that because of the invasion of Assyria that it's referencing, as I'll give you the story, um, was around that time. So this is written over two and a half thousand years ago and over 700 years before the coming of Christ. We're we're in an ancient, ancient story. And uh, the story is like this. So Isaiah has been called by God to be a prophet. He has had in many ways a rather unenviable calling. He has been asked by God to go and preach God's word and not many people will listen. This does not warm the hearts of most preachers. But God says there will be a remnant. Uh, picture it like this. It's like the, the tree is going to cut down, get cut down. But out of the stump, there'll be a plant that will grow up, a seed. And that seed will be uh, the coming of the Messiah in the context of the remnant of God's people. And then the gospel uh, will go to all nations. 
And so Isaiah, throughout his book, really has one consistent message. And the consistent message is this, faith. Trust in God. There are a series of crises that face God's people. Political crises, because of course it was a theocracy at the time, so it affected the government and uh, all, all the, the justice, law courts and everything, the nation, the land. A series of crises from different invading armies. And every time Isaiah stands, probably, we don't know for sure, but probably he came from a significant kind of aristocratic family, so he had access uh, to the, the powers that be. And he stands before the court, he stands before the king, and every time he says, trust in God. He will do it. Don't trust in Assyria and all their apparent worldly power and their armies. Don't trust in that. Don't align with the latest pagan philosophy. Don't trust in that. Don't trust in Assyria. Don't trust in Babylon, the the empire that came after Assyria. Don't trust in Egypt. Trust in God. Over and over again, he says this. So in, in chapter 7, which is the context of the, of the part of the story we're looking at this morning, he goes to Ahaz and he, say, and he says, there, he says uh, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Trust in God. Then again, uh, uh, chapter 28, he talks about how that God is the firm foundation. Trust in God. And then he says, chapter 30, no, in rest and trust is your salvation. In God, trust in God, trust in God, trust in God. This is the consistent message of Isaiah throughout his book for all these political crises. And in the story, the part of the story we're looking at this morning, Isaiah has just received his commission. Isaiah chapter six, chapter six he sees the Lord high and exalted in the temple. Holy, holy is the Lord. He receives this commission to go and, go and preach. Not many will listen, but there'll be a remnant that does. And his first task is to go and confront King Ahaz. And he goes and meets him. He brings with him his son. His son is called after a part, a key part of uh, one of the key parts of his message. A remnant shall return. That's the name of his son. It's, it, it's a, a visual image of Isaiah's message. And he confronts Ahaz. And Ahaz, you see, has a crisis. He has a problem. So you remember, perhaps from your history books, that Israel by this time had been divided into two kingdoms. There was a southern kingdom that Ahaz was the king of. Then there was the northern kingdom. And the, 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 the tribes of the northern kingdom were going to war with the southern kingdom. And uh, this was not going to be an even contest. Uh, there, there are more, more tribes in the north, more populous, probably more wealthy. They were going to, they were going to win easily. And, and so Ahaz has a s- significant political crisis, a military crisis. And what's he going to do? And Isaiah confronts him. He stands before him and says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. In other words, trust in God. God will do it. But very sadly, Ahaz rejects Isaiah's message. He's even, he's even given the option. He says, ask for a sign, Isaiah says. Ask to Ahaz, ask for a sign in heaven or on earth. Any, any kind of sign you can wish for. And Ahaz refuses out of some kind of fake piety. I will not test God. You know, if God comes to you and says, ask for a sign, you can ask for one. But Ahaz does not. And instead of trusting in God, he trusts very foolishly in Assyria. Seems good, the local superpower. He makes a deal. He basically goes to Assyria and says, hey, can you please come and invade the northern kingdoms for me so that they don't invade me? And Assyria does that and conquers them. 
And Ahaz, we know this from 1 Kings, even goes to the length of going to Damascus, the capital of Assyria, and sees there a wonderful altar, a, a shrine to the pagan gods. And thinks, oh, I'll have me one of those. That seems very powerful. And he copies it and builds a shrine in the temple in Jerusalem. In the temple in Jerusalem is now a shrine to the pagan god of Assyria. It's a disaster of cataclysmic proportions, militarily, humanitarian, in terms of humanitarianism. People are killed, there's bloodshed, there's war, there's butchery. And most of all, spiritually, in the temple in Jerusalem, there's now a shrine to the pagan gods of Assyria. What hope? Ah, but there is hope. And so now we come to Isaiah chapter 9. There is great hope. Yes, there's judgment, uh, Isaiah is preaching. But also now, Isaiah chapter 9, there is hope. Another major theme in his book, judgment, but also hope, as he's calling them to trust in God. And Isaiah chapter 9, this, this message of hope, it's, it, Isaiah basically has, if, you have to, if you're taking notes, two elements to it that, about this hope. And the first element is in verses 1 to 3, and it is the hope described the hope described and in these verses there are two sets of images that describe this hope in visual and highly imaginative and slightly change the metaphor evocative terms to make it sit up and speak to you the hope that he's talking about and, and, and the, the first image is about darkness. You know, so here's, here's all this invasion and bloodshed, darkness to light. And then the other image is, is, is about gloom becoming the joy of harvest and all the celebration that would take place at harvest in an agrarian society. You know, it's amazing celebrations. These, ma- these two wonderful images. But to get them, you've got to get a little bit of geography right. And Isaiah is assuming that we know our ancient Israelite geography because his original audience would have done. But of course we don't. I mean, who's Zebulun and who's Naphtali and where's Galilee of the nations? Well, Zebulun and Naphtali are two of the ancient tribes of Israel. And they're in the northeast of the, of the kingdoms. And Galilee of the nations is another way of describing that whole region. It'd be a bit like in America saying... Maine and New Hampshire, or the whole of New England, Zebulun and Naphtali, the, the Galilee of the nations, of the nations because now it's been invaded by pagan nations. Their light will dawn. And if you know your Bibles, amazingly, Matthew describes Matthew's gospel. How Jesus will come, quoting from this passage in Isaiah, his ministry is based in Galilee, Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the nations, where there is darkness, theologically, spiritually, militarily, politically, darkness, there's light. And the Messiah will walk and teach And be present as light in Galilee. It's darkness to light. It's such a powerful image. And I want you to 
to see it. You know, when I was, um, uh, I think I was about, well, I was about 18. I was trying to earn some money. I, I lived in Canada for a year when I, uh, before I went up to university. And uh, the one, the, one of the ways I tried to earn some money to buy a ticket to go to Canada was I worked on a farm. And the farm was in the middle of nowhere in England. And so, you know, not much. You, you get outside the farm and it's very, very dark. And every, every now and then when I got kind of, you know, bored of having pigs for friends, I, I decided I'd go to the local town, right? And so I'd done my work for the day, and I'd walk into, into the local town and hang out with some friends over a cup of coffee or, or something like that. And then later that evening, I'd walk back through the woods. Boy, it's dark out there. Just, you cannot see anything. You hardly see the hand in front. I was just amazed. You hardly see the hand in front of your face. Dark. And then a car will come around the corner. Blinding light. There's hope. I don't know what kind of darkness you're going through, what kind of, maybe it's family, maybe it's political, the nation, maybe it's something internal. There's light, Isaiah is saying. You can have it. And there's gloom that becomes, can become joy. He emphasizes this by repetition. Uh, verse 3. Uh, uh, joy. Rejoice. Joy. Glad. It's this harvest celebration of joy. You can almost hear the music like joy, joy, joy. Glad. They're celebrating you can have it. So he's describing the hope. Now, of course, you know, the comeback that we're going to have is, what well, is it real? And so then he moves on to verses uh, four to seven, where he moves to not describe the hope, but to explain it, to ground it in something real that is tangible and that we can then say, yeah, this, is, this, is, this doesn't just sound good. Joy, joy, joy. And light in the darkness, it doesn't just sound good. It's, it's, it's real. And so as he explains it, he, he gives three explanations and each of them introduced by the word for, F-O-R. So verse four, for the yoke of his burden. That's one explanation. Then verse five, for every boot of the tramping warrior. And then verse 6, for to us a child is born, the very famous words. Each of these explanations. So verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now again, here's another geographical thing. What's the day of Midian? This refers back to Gideon in Judges 6 to 8, a famous day of Midian in Israelite history, when Gideon defeated the, the the invaders that invaded the same portion of the land, Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee, the nations, Gideon defeated them not through the strength of his military might, but through trusting in God. And this first explanation of verse 4 is all about torture and the prisoner of war. The yoke of his burden is sort of enslaved work by the invading army forcing you to do it. And the staff for his shoulder is not like a nice little staff. It's being hit. 
and the rod of his oppressor. Again, it's like the whip. This, this is being beaten up. I, I summarize this as what Isaiah is saying is that the beatings will be beaten. That's the first explanation. And then the second one, verse 5, again, 4, is here we're not for every boot of the tramping warrior. Here we're not in the prison of war cell. We're not in, in, in the camp where you've been beaten up, having been captured. No, we're now in the actual battlefield. And there are tanks and machine guns and boots. But I say, I says, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The machine gun will be broken. Those tanks, the wheels, will just roll right off. How's that going to happen? Third explanation, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. It's going to happen through a child. Here, we can't help but think of the music that's been put to this. You know, if you know Handel's Messiah, it's probably playing in your minds right now, the song. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. Really? This is going to happen through a child? Well, look at his names. Wonderful counselor, or literally, wonder counselor. His teaching will be so amazing, they'll say, no man ever taught like this. Wonder counselor, supernatural teacher. Mighty God. God himself in human flesh. The phrase mighty God is used later in chapter 10 by Isaiah to refer to Yahweh, to the Lord, to God himself, mighty God, everlasting Father. Now, a lot of people wondered about this. Isaiah is not suddenly confused by the persons of the Trinity. What, what, he, what he's describing is that Jesus is a father to those who have no father. He's talking about his fatherly care for the children of God. Charles Spurgeon put it like this, you cannot unfather the Christ and you cannot unchild us. He is everlastingly a father to those who trust in him. He's going to take care of you. And then Prince of Peace. And the peace, as you perhaps know, is the word there is shalom, which has a much bigger meaning than our meaning of peace. Not simply the ceasing of hostilities, but the, the wholeness and integrity and healing, the shalom, the sense of the parts inside me and the parts outside me all fit together. And I'm in a place, I'm a person that just fits with integration and wholeness and integrity and healing, shalom. Peace. How's this going to happen? It's going to happen through his government. That is through his rule. That is through his kingdom. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And then verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, it is his rule. 
to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is trusting God. He will do it. And he's talking about the coming of the kingdom of Christ and his birth and death and resurrection. The coming of the kingdom in each of us when we trust him and receive him. The growth of that kingdom throughout the world and the final return of Christ, the coming of the kingdom when every tramping boot and every garment rolled in blood will be ended. There will be an everlasting shalom, peace. All through this child. Now you're, you're probably saying like, you know, oh, that sounds great, but is it, is it really real? Is it actually real? Let me give you three ways it's real as we come to the end. First, financially. Financially. You can trust in God with your finances. You know, Rochelle and I, we've often um, sort of laughed to each each other. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be wealthy? Maybe you feel like that too some days. We think, wouldn't it be great to have just like a bunch of money and then you could, it'd be so much fun. You could just think, you know, I'll I'll, I'll give to that ministry. I'll, 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 I'll invest in that kingdom work you can put a flame under this and this it'd be like being a kid in a candy store you could just do so much but that hasn't been our path back when I was studying at Yale University I was in the Beinecke library at Yale I read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards and Edwards one of many sermons by Jonathan Edwards but one particular sermon hit me which is his sermon on Jesus teaching seek first the kingdom of God the kingdom his rule, his government. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. And I, at that moment, I just made a kind of like, Lord, I'm going to do what you call me to do and you're going to have to take care of all the rest. And we've lived our lives that way. You've got to live your life that way whether you've got a lot of money or, or, or a little money. Either way, there's so much anxiety around money. You know, one time when I, I was doing mission trips, we do a whole bunch of mission trips. Uh, we call them STAMP, short-term mission projects. We've got them going right now, and you can, you can volunteer and get involved. And maybe you're thinking, I, how can I trust God for that? You know, one, one mission trip I was leading, there was a group of people going out with us to a Muslim country. We, we were going there, and we'd done every, everything we could to raise the money, but for some reason or other, the money wasn't there. I, I, we, were, we were about to fly out in two days, and, and the money wasn't there. I didn't know how we were going to get it done, how it was going to happen. And I was praying, and I remember coming down after bre- over, uh, before breakfast one morning, going to the, the mailbox or the equivalent in England, and just seeing the envelope there, unmarked envelope with cash for exactly the amount of money we needed. Can I tell you a number of times, you just don't, don't hold on to your money like this. If you've got a lot, it rejoices. Oh, I've got all this stuff I can invest in, that's so good. Trust God with it. Financially. It really is real. Theologically. Yeah, theologically. 
It's possible, isn't it, to get so feel like you're getting so sophisticated intellectually that you get to the point when you think, you know, inerrancy, oh, that's for simpletons, but, you know, sophisticated people like us don't really take this as God's word, you know, I mean, we, don't, we don't think there's just Isaiah, it's far more complicated than that, and, and we, we trust in God. J.I. Packer, in his famous book, Knowing God, tells a story about this. He tells a story of going out for a walk with an academic. An academic who lost his job over trusting in God and his word. And as they were talking, the academic said, But it doesn't matter, for I have known God, and they have not. Trust in God. Theologically. Think he's not bigger than your brain? Financially, theologically, personally. Louis Zamperini fought in the Second World War. He had been a first-rate Olympic athlete. He'd gone to the 1936 Olympics and actually met Hitler there. Hitler wanted to meet him because he was so fast he wanted to shake his hand. Zamperini um, was on a plane over the the Pacific. He was fighting in the Asian theater. And uh, his plane got shot down. And he, with some other people, were adrift on a raft for days after days after days in the Pacific. Finally, he was rescued. And they were taken to a prisoner of war camp and suffered great abuse from a number of different prison guards. One in particular they, they were most scared of he was the most sadistic by a long way. They called him the bird. He would get his, his belt buckle and wrap it around his fist and beat Louis Zamperini till he was knocked unconscious. And then he'd wake up again and beat him again. One time Louis Zamperini managed to get transferred to another prisoner war camp hoping that he'd escape from the bird and as he was standing there with, the, with other uh, prisoners of war in line waiting for the camp attendant to walk out, the guy in charge. Who would walk out in charge but the bird? One time he'd done something wrong and uh, the bird in punishment said to him, Here's a four by four. Here's this Olympic athlete. Now, you know, because he'd been eating so badly, down to 90 pounds or something, but an Olympic athlete. You know, take that four by four, hold it above your head. And if you drop it, I'm going to beat you up. So he takes the four by four, Louis Zamperini, holds it above his head. The bird watches from a, a low roof nearby, sitting on a chair, laughing. Oh, this is fun. Hey, this is great, isn't it? There's Louis Zamperini holding this four by four above his head. Outside, in the elements, minute after minute, finally the bird gives up and just punches in the stomach and the 4 by 4 hits him on the head. A friend of his was timing how long Louis Zamperini held that 4 by 4 37 minutes. 
Well, the war came to an end and Louis Zamperini went back home. He got married and then he began to, in the middle of the night, wake up with nightmares. Over and over again, he dreamt that he'd found the bird and he was strangling him slowly to death. He started to turn to alcohol. His life was falling apart. Finally, in desperation, his wife invited him to hear a young preacher called Billy Graham. And as Billy Graham was preaching, Louis Zamperini remembered a vow he had made to God on that raft in the Pacific. If you save me, he had said, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And Louis Zamperini gave his life to Christ in that meeting, received Christ's forgiveness, and forgave the prison guards. He actually flew back to Japan and had a public meeting with those prison guards and publicly forgave them. Uh, The bird was not there. He asked about him and was told that he'd probably committed harakiri, suicide. But later he found that somehow the bird had escaped any ramifications and was still alive. And so he wrote him a letter. Here is the letter. To Mutsuhiro Watanabe, the bird. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham... I committed my life to Christ. Love has replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugumo Prison. I asked then about you and was told that you probably had committed harakiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Louis Zamperini. Oh, it's real. The conflict in your marriage, the abuse that you experienced, the anger, the hate, For unto us a child is born. Trust him.
Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would help us to do that. We put our trust in you uh, this morning. Lord, we trust you for our finances, for the things we don't understand theologically. We trust you personally. Lord, we trust you for the politics of this country, for We trust you, Lord, for our church. And we pray, Lord, that that peace of your rule, your government, will come into our hearts. And we rejoice, Lord, that your promise is that it will be extended now and forevermore. For which we give you great praise. In Jesus' name, amen.